Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 18. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay cl much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or dis disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, 
I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we're in a season uh, of Advent. Uh, This is the beginning of sort of the the Christian calendar. It's a season when um, God's people anticipate and prepare for God's coming. Um, And so because of that, it's a great season to consider who Jesus is. That's part of what we anticipate in Advent is the coming of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so um, this is a great season to just look for several weeks at who Jesus is. That's what we're going to focus on these first two chapters over the next several weeks. Um, And uh, this is a busy season. I know that. Uh, We're all, you know, hurried and lots of events and we're preparing for the holidays and time with family. Uh, And so I know that our lives are already crowded uh, in this season, but the reality is our lives are incredibly busy and distracted uh, and crowded all the time. (laughs) That is the nature of life today. Um, Lots of social commentators have observed that we live in an age of distraction. And one of the dangers of living in an age of distraction is that the biggest threats to our lives um, are often not obvious to us. Um, We get caught up in the immediate and what's right in front of us and moving from one thing to the next. And it's easy to slowly drift away from what is important because we focus on what is urgent. It's very easy to lose sight of what is weighty and substantive and fixate on what is exciting and right before us. And so over time, it's very easy for us in in the setting in which we live to drift away from that which is good and true and beautiful. And so I'm hoping that Hebrews, um, I believe Hebrews, the book, will help us um, to pay attention. That's the focus of this book, really, to pay attention, to hold fast to continue trusting in Jesus Christ so that we um, continue our whole lives in in faith in him. This book uh, is a bizarre book. You may have caught that as we were reading. It's got a lot of Old Testament quotations, and you're like, what is he talking about here? And the author takes some interesting uh, interpretive moves when he looks at the Old Testament. Um, But this whole book is most likely written to Jewish Christians, maybe in Rome, uh, in the early church, who um, were sliding back into observing a sort of more Jewish understanding of Scripture and embracing the Jewish practices that they had left behind when they came to believe in Jesus Christ and therefore really failing to live into this new arrangement that God had created with his people we call the New Covenant. 
And that may have been because of social pressure um, from the Jewish community. Uh, it may have been because of the threat of persecution. There's all sorts of reasons. But it's clear that over and over again, the author is warning the people of God not to slide back, to drift away, but to persevere, to continue clinging to Jesus Christ. That's the overall message of this book. And um, throughout the book, he basically makes several arguments about why they should persevere Namely, because Jesus is superior. Christ is greater, is what he says over and over and over again. Christ is greater than angels and Moses and Joshua and Aaron and the priesthood and the whole Mosaic covenant. All these things that we read about in the Old Testament, um, the author of Hebrews is telling us Christ is superior. That was the shadow. This is the fulfillment of what God has been doing throughout history. And so this is an excellent book for us to consider. So um, we continue and persevere in faith. But maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know what I think about Jesus at all, or I've really struggled with the church and I've struggled with faith. I think this is a great book for you as well, because it's constantly setting forth Jesus and showing us what he's about and what he has done. Um, and it's putting it into dialogue with other religious practices and approaches, mainly uh, Judaism. But it has tons of relevance for the way we consider all sorts of other religious um, and ideological options. Now, you might be thinking, well, this language of superiority, Christ is superior, Christ is greater, that maybe that makes you a little nervous, it sounds prideful, and maybe it seems like that could um, give license to some um, unhealthy behavior towards people we disagree with. And maybe you think we shouldn't have this idea of, of superiority in our ideas. And I, I understand that, that you know, often when people think they're superior in what they believe. That can lead to violence, can lead to derogatory behavior. But the reality is everybody thinks that what they believe is superior. Otherwise, you wouldn't believe that. I and mean, you think it's a better way of thinking than other people, and it's better for the world. So that's unavoidable to think that there are some ideas that are superior to others. And um, what's critical for us is to think about um, whether our ideas are good for even those we disagree with. And I want to argue throughout this book that um, absolutely we believe Jesus is superior. He is greater than all else. And that's actually good for the world. That's even good for people who might disagree with us. And I hope that we see that as we go through this book. So um, as we go through it, the book of Hebrews is about receiving and persevering in faith in Jesus Christ because there is no one greater and only he can bring life to the world. So that's the series and now I want to introduce what we're talking about this morning. Okay, a lot of talking about what I'm going to talk about. I'm sorry. It's just the nature of it. But um, today, we're going to look at the first argument that is made about what Christ is superior than. And he's going to talk about being superior to angels. And I recognize that might seem odd. Uh, you may just think, of course, you know, you'd think Jesus is superior to or uh, angels. That's kind of obvious. Um, or maybe you're thinking angels, like, are you seriously talking about angels? And yes, that's what the book begins talking about. And so um, why do we need to talk about this? Um, well, in the Bible, angels are beings with great power and glory. Over and over again, we see that when they show up, they are beautiful creatures. They're powerful figures. Um, they're the sorts of creatures that people are prone to worship or um, follow despite their message, whatever that might be. And so you might think, well, that's kind of superstitious, but I'm just telling you up front, we believe in weird things here. We believe God exists. We believe people can rise from the dead. We believe that Jesus is coming back. So we believe in miracles. So that we believe in angels shouldn't seem that much weirder. Um, we don't talk about them all the time, but we're going to talk about it today because that's what our passage is about. But the thing is, lots of people believe in spirits. That's what angels are. They're just spirits non-physical beings. 
And, you know, you can look at uh, spiritualists, people who dive into the spiritual realm as a sort of new age religion or pagan ideologies and philosophies, uh, animist religions, Hindus, Muslims. I mean, lots of people believe in spirits. So we're not that weird, um, but we, we think Christ is superior to all of those. Now, why, you might say, why would the author be talking about Jesus being greater than angels? Um, and, the, and the reason for this is that in and outside the church, the existence of angels and spiritual beings generally raises questions about Jesus' identity. Uh, it does. It's happened many times. In the early church, a lot of people began to downgrade who they thought Jesus was to the level of angelic status. So, you know, that was a, it's an open question for a lot of people. And even today, um, this has been very common. If you look at the beginning of Islam or Mormonism, uh, even Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, many other religious um, outlooks, a lot of them began because uh, supposedly, allegedly, an angelic messenger came and said, this is the truth, and Jesus is not who you think he is. He's actually just like an angel, or he's like a lower God than God the Father. So this is relevant because we have to see that Scripture actually does teach that Christ is superior to all of creation. That's what we're going to get at, uh, especially today. Um, and even in the church, there can be an over-fascination with angels and the spiritual realm. When um, maybe you are drawn to uh, a sort of much more experiential, uh, immediate encounter with God, uh, and, and not just through something like a meal of wine and bread or praying or reading the Bible. You want, you want to feel something more direct from God that makes you very open and interested in the spiritual realm. And so we've got to really put that in its place and understand how Christ relates to this. So with all of that throat clearing, the message today um, is that Jesus is no angel. He is, in fact, the creator who sustains all things and to whom all things are ordered. Everything is directed. All of creation is ordered toward Christ. He is the creator, sustainer, and heir. That's the message that we're going to see. Now, the passage that I read earlier has a few verses that are kind of the prologue for the whole book, and then it has two arguments about the superiority of Christ over angels. And in the middle of that is kind of the message, the takeaway that he wants us to get from this. So we're going to explore this in three parts, first by looking at Christ as the creator. So I'm jumping around here in verse 2, verses 8 through 12, and then in chapter 2, verse 10. So let me highlight what the author says here about Jesus, that he is superior to angels because he is the creator of all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. That's, what, that's one of the things that makes him superior to angels. Look at verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, I said this is the prologue of the book, and it begins with a lot of statements about the Son of God, okay, which is not identified as Jesus until chapter 2. But everywhere we read about the Son here in the first chapter, it's, it's about Jesus Christ. And here, one of the phrases I want to highlight is that he says God created the world through his Son, through Jesus Christ. Cre Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth, which is the Bible's way of talking about all things. It encompasses everything. And it says that even in verses 8 through 12, where the author contrasts angels as the servants of the creator with Jesus Christ as the creator. 
and says that um, the author says that God here in the Psalms that he quotes is speaking about Jesus. So it takes the Psalm, it puts it in the mouth of God speaking about Jesus Christ. Verse eight, and and of the son, he, God says, you Lord Yahweh laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now this is a significant way that he is employing the Psalm because he's saying that God is speaking and that he speaks of his son and he says that his son is the Lord, which is the the term Yahweh, which is the name for the one God in the faith of Israel. And so God, the father, is speaking of his son and saying, you are God with me, and you are the one who created the heaven and the earth. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, we see that Jesus is the son through whom all things were created. He says in verse 10, it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, Now notice, he's saying all things exist by Jesus. And that must mean that there is nothing that began to exist that Jesus did not bring into existence. That Jesus belongs to the class of things that never began to exist. And that means the Son was not created by God the Father. The Son has always existed and has life in himself. The Son is the instrument through which the one God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, created all that is, all that is created. Now that's very strange. This is very high theology here. This gets into the deepest mystery of the Christian faith, which is who God is as a triune God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we learn here and throughout Scripture is that all that God does in the world, you know, exterior to himself, he does from the Father, through the Son, and in the power of the Spirit. And here he is telling us that creation is from the Father, that God the Father creates through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus is greater than angels because he is the creator of all things, including angels, which are spirits made to minister to and serve the creator. Now, this is important for us to hear, and you might say, I know this, this is obvious, but this is, we've, we've got to see this conviction rooted in Scripture itself, that there are a lot of religions, a lot of ideologies that subordinate Jesus to God the Father or even to the level of being an angel. This was an early error in the early church we call the Arian heresy that said that Jesus was the first creation of God, that he was a created being made by God, and that then he created the world, but he himself was created. That is opposed by what we just read a second ago. Islam teaches an even lower view of Jesus, that he is simply a prophet. Mormonism would say, yes, Jesus is the son of God. He's a God as well. But when you press in to understand what they mean by that, they would say that Jesus is just like you and I. He was a, a person with a body and that he lived this perfect life and he, he gained God's status. He is not one with the eternal, always existing God who created all things. Jehovah's Witnesses, same thing uh, as the Aaron heresy. And of course, People who don't believe in in any supernatural at all would say Jesus was just a teacher or a leader. All of those are combated by this chapter, which says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has all life in himself, all power in himself. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is not a creature. He is the creator. And that is good news for us, that the God that we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Christ the Son is the creator of all things, that he gives us an identity, he gives us purpose, and that he is worthy of our worship 
and our, and our obedience. Now, I also want us to see that Jesus is called the sustainer of all things. That's the second point I want us to see. And we see this, it's only mentioned one time in this passage in verse 3, that Jesus is not just the creator, but he is the sustainer of all things. He is superior to angels because angels exist by the power of Jesus. In verse 3, speaking of the Son, of Jesus, he says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not just God's agent who in the past created all things. He presently sustains and upholds and carries creation forward towards its goal, which we'll talk about in a moment. Now, how does he do that? The author tells us he does it by his powerful word. The Son speaks to sustain all things. The counsel of God issues forth from the Father, is carried out in creation as the Son speaks his counsel, such that the Spirit upholds and moves all things forward. Jesus is superior to angels because he sustains everything that exists, including angels, which cannot exist unless the powerful words of Jesus continue to give them life. Now, that's very different than the way we tend to think about the world. We think of creation as a machine. Often, we, even if you're a Christian, you might think, oh, yeah, God made everything, and now it's just kind of unraveling or unfolding over time. It's just a machine that's operating independently. Maybe arbitrarily, history seems to be kind of moving just by happenstance. And Jesus often can be thought of as simply one power among many powers that are in competition with one another in this world. And maybe you think, our choices have a huge impact on where things are going, or, or maybe the suffering and tragedy that we face seems more powerful than God's intervention in your life. And what we need to see here is that the Son, Jesus Christ, is not far from us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. Our agency and the agency of angels is continually made possible by the power, the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. Jesus is moving everything forward toward his purposes and goal. And that's the third thing I want us to see today is that Jesus is the heir of creation. Or you could say he is the, the end, the goal of creation. And we see this in verse 2, verses 4 and 5, verses 6 through 9, and chapter 2, 5 through 9. Because rea the reality is this is actually the big argument that's being made in the first two chapters of Hebrews. Jesus is superior to angels because he is the end, he is the goal to which all of creation is directed. And he is the appointed heir, the, the one who will inherit all of creation to the glory of God. This is explicitly stated in verse 2 of chapter 1, where it says, Whom he, God the Father, appointed the heir of all things. Now, there it is. It's just said very explicitly for us. But we go on to read what he means by that. The second place we see this is in verses 4 and 5, where the author explains that the text in the Old Testament associated with God's anointed king, the, the Messiah of Israel, are about Jesus, who, who will be enthroned forever. Let me read that again. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, this is Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
Now, these two texts are messianic texts. They're widely seen as places where God is speaking about the king that he is going to um, send that will renew Israel and all the nations will be gathered to him and he will bring salvation to the Gentiles and he'll welcome all the people, uh, people of the earth and he'll have a throne that lasts forever. And here we see both of these passages are interpreted to be about Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, um, it says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Now that's a weird word. And if you've studied the Trinity, you know that we use that word begotten to talk about the eternal procession of the Son from the Father. But that's not how it's being used here. The word begotten here is being used about vesting someone um, with kingship, appointing them as a king. And this is a, sta a place where God speaks in the Psalms about appointing a new king, his messianic king, who's going to reign over his people. And of this king, he says that um, this person has received a name, that um, he is inherited. That's an odd way of speaking. He's been given a name that he's inherited. Well, the reason why the author of Hebrews says that's about Jesus is that Jesus is the eternal son of God who came into history and therefore rightfully, by right of who he is, is given the name of God. And he is appointed as God's king. That is fitting because of who he is, that even though he was made lower, he became part of creation. He was given this name and he serves as God's king. And it says of this king that the nations are his heritage and the earth is his possession. So the author of Hebrews is saying, this is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is God's promised king who would inherit the eternal kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 7 says a similar thing. This is a passage where God promises David that his sons will always be on the throne of Israel. This is the Davidic covenant. It is what sets up the whole messianic expectation in the rest of the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews interprets this as God speaking about David's son, Jesus Christ, that all of history is moving to the triumph of God's king, who is Jesus. Now, if you go down a few verses in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and I'm not going to read this again, he makes further arguments that the angels worship Jesus as the eternal king. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, we see the argument that everything in all of creation has been put in subjection to Jesus because he became incarnate. He became incarnate. He died for our sins and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Because he did that, all things have been given to him and all things have been put in subjection to him. So what I want us to see here is that the argument through all of these two chapters is that Jesus is greater than the angels because the goal of creation is the glory of King Jesus exalted over all things. That's the, the argument that he's making here. Jesus is not some tool or means to some other goal. And that's often how we can think of him, that he's a tool for us. He's, he's, uh, he's part of our political agenda for the life that we have here. There's a lot of ways that we hijack Jesus and we make him a tool towards some other agenda. And what the author of Hebrews tells us is that everything is for the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the goal of creation. He is the one who will inherit an eternal kingdom. And everything in history is moving towards him being established and reigning forever. Now that might seem a bit odd to you. And maybe that sounds a little um, uh, callous or like we don't really matter if that's the case. And I understand how we can kind of hear that this way. Everything's about the glory of God. Where do I fit into this? But when we step back and we look at the whole story of the Bible, 
what we see is that God is a builder who created the world to be his home, to be his temple, where um, those who bear his image would be ministers to him to serve and to live with him in joy in his presence. That's what all of creation is intended to be. And this home was made for God to dwell with his bride. That's one of the images that is used for the people of God throughout the Bible. That the, the people of God are to join with God and have this intimate union as groom and bride, this deep connection and intimacy and joy that is to be shared. Also, that we as God's children, brothers and sisters, are to um, live in the family of God, in the presence of the Father. That's the goal of creation. But the ultimate end or goal of this building project is that God would be glorified in all this, that Christ would be exalted and seen in all his beauty for all that he has created and for all that he has redeemed. Because God, friends, is the supreme good of creation. God cannot make this world about anything else except God, because he is greater than all things. And this is why in Romans um, chapter 11, I love this little verse. We can read over it so easily. Paul says, it is from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, God, be glory forever. Think about that. From him, creator, through him, sustainer, and to him are all things, the heir of the world. To him be glory forever. We are not the ultimate goal of creation. Our salvation is not the ultimate end of creation. Christ, as the glorious heir of all things, is the goal. But here is the good news. We are the beneficiaries of this goal. We are the beneficiaries of this goal. Our salvation is not the end goal of creation, but we benefit from God ordering all things to the glory of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? It's because we obviously benefit from Christ being displayed in all his glory. As we trust in him and rely upon him, we learn to delight and love him and enjoy his world as a gift of grace from God. And the thing is, God cannot benefit from this project. God does not make himself the end of all of creation because he is in need of something. He is lacking something. No, he makes himself the end of all creation because nothing is greater than him. And that's good for us to delight in and find our joy in. And so when we take, when we step back from all of this, we say, why is this argument being made? I want us to look at chapter two, verses one through four, because here's where the author says, here's what you do with this. And he says it in verse one, as clearly as he can. He says, therefore, based on everything I'm arguing here, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, what is he talking about there? What, what have we heard? He's talking about the, the good news of Jesus Christ, right? We live in this age of distraction. We, we are amusing ourselves to death. There's tons of evidence for this. Um, we often live as if we are the masters of our own lives and destiny. And the author here says, pay attention to what you have heard this message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, for a time entered into creation. The one who sustains creation, the creator of all things, actually became a part of his creation. He became lower than angels, is how the, Hebrews, uh, how the author of Hebrews says it. He took a position of humility as a human. He took on human flesh. And it says he suffered to purify us from our sins and to save us from death. Christ made purifications for our sins. I mean, if you're like me today, you feel the need to be cleansed and healed of the sin in your life. 
the ways that you don't love God, the ways that you don't love other people, the ways you feel stuck for how you've developed habits in your life that isn't bearing good fruit in your life. We all have those places where we're feeling sort of death hanging over us. We're feeling corruption and impurity in us. And Hebrews tells us Jesus, the creator, came in and took on human flesh to purify us to wash away our impurities, to heal us. And ultimately, he died for us on the cross in order to defeat death, which hangs over all of us. And all of this, friends, is a gift of God's grace. This is a gift from the creator and the redeemer, that the creator became part of creation and suffered and then was exalted to become the heir. All of this is a message of good news for us that we can receive by faith. So pay attention to that. Don't lose sight of it. Don't allow yourself to drift. Now, if you are here today and you're not sure what you think about all this or you don't believe all this, um, I'm, I'm telling you today it's on offer to you. You also should not ignore this message that God offers you life, the life that the same life that he um, started all things with. He also renews us in Jesus. That's on offer to you. And you should investigate that. You should look into it. It's the best news that exists out there if it's true. And you should make sure that you know whether or not it is true. But for the rest of us who have believed this message, let us not lose sight of this. Let's not ignore it or drift away or let other things captivate our attention. Let us hold fast to this message of Jesus. Now, how do you do that? How do we hold fast to it? Well, we do it first through our worship of Jesus as the eternal son of God who created, sustains, and is the heir of all things. Our regular worship of God here on Sundays, but also in private, is absolutely essential to holding fast to this good news. You can't um, hold fast to it if you aren't regularly delighting in the good news of Jesus. But let me give you three other ways. We hold fast to this good news by giving thanks on a regular basis. Practicing intentional gratitude to God. Sometimes it has to be a discipline, right? We, we teach our children to say thank you because we know that by requiring that of them, it helps develop the virtue of gratitude and, and they need to practice that. Well, we also need to practice this. And so we give thanks to God, to Jesus Christ, who is our creator. He gave us the lives that we have. And more than that, he gives us redemption, this purification and this resurrection. We've got to intentionally give thanks on a regular basis. But secondly, we've got to live dependently. That's part of what it means to see that Jesus is our sustainer, is we live dependently on God. And there's no greater way to live dependently on God than to pray continually. Prayer is a fundamental act of dependence. A life where we aren't praying regularly, quietly, on our own, with family, with friends, with our home group community, with our church, is a life that lives independently. And it's easy for us to drift away from this good news if we aren't regularly practicing dependence through prayer and trusting in Jesus's provision. And then finally, we are to orient our lives to God's purposes. Jesus is the heir of all things. If he is the end of all creation, then we have to intentionally order our lives to the glory of God in Christ. That doesn't happen by accident. We don't drift into prioritizing Jesus in our lives. We drift away from that. And so we've got to regularly practice aligning our lives, our vision for where we're going, our vision individually as families, as a church, towards the priorities of Jesus's kingdom. That is how we hold fast. That's how we pay attention to this good news of Jesus. Now we're going to get into these same verses again, and we're going to look at more of what is said about Jesus here. 
But this is the good first step to see who is Jesus Christ according to the, the, the book of Hebrews. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is the heir of all things. Now, when we come to the Lord's table this morning, we see all of this in this meal. Uh, it's amazing how rich this meal is in, in showing God's good news to us. In this meal, we see the humility of our creator. In the bread and wine, we, we have this picture that our creator actually took on human flesh and that Christ gave his body and shed his blood on the cross for our sins. Um, here in the meal, we taste the sustaining power of God in our lives. We actually take God's promises into us, and this is one of the ways he upholds us and sustains us in our lives. And lastly, in this meal, we anticipate the future feast of our king when he receives the glory of his eternal kingdom. So let me pray, and then we will come and feast together.